Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to be here at ASI and also for this opportunity to talk about human resources issues and the different things we can do to help protect our ministries and to further your work. Bless our time together and let it be fruitful and truly to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just ask, is there anybody here that is part of a business? Business, okay, we have one or a couple. Um, and the rest are nonprofits, I'm assuming? Nonprofits? Okay. So I um, just wanted to see what kind of audience I'm talking to right now. I just have a couple disclaimers being the attorney that I am. Um, I have to make sure that you understand that what I am telling you today is not going to be construed as legal advice. Uh, I will be talking about various statutes, various legislation, and how they may impact your organization. Now, as to whether they do impact your organization will need to be determined between you and your personal attorney. Um, this, like I said, cannot be construed as legal advice. It's purely informational. So I don't want you to take what I say and go back and say, well, Laura M. said this at ASI. Purely informational. It may relate to your organization, let's say that. And what I'm going to be talking about today, it's just merely scratching the surface. A lot of the statutes, a lot of the legislation, they're a lot more in-depth and complex than I can ever give them credit for. Um, it's simply the gist of what the statute is about. I do think it's important to talk about it to give you an awareness of what you may have out there. But as you know, and with anybody that has dealt with the law, there are exceptions to the rules all the time. So. We're just talking about the overall gist of it. And again, it's a lot more complex and in-depth than even I can give credit for. So to get those disclaimers out of the way, let's go right in. So I guess one of the questions that we should start out with is, what is human resources? We talk about it quite a bit. Um, the best definition that I found was in Wikipedia. And this is what Wikipedia says. A human resources department of a company performs human resource management. What's human resource management? So overseeing various aspects of employment, such as compliance with labor law and employment standards. Are we in compliance with the law? That's pretty self-explanatory. Administration of employee benefits. Does your organization offer fringe benefits? Well, if it does, it oversees the administration of them and some aspects of recruitment and dismissal, hiring, firing, things like that. It's pretty self-explanatory over there. But um, <clears throat> what you can see is that based on the human resources itself, uh, employee satisfaction is very important, and HR is kind of in charge of that aspect. And you'll see that HR is also very important to protecting your organization from potential liability. So even if you don't have our human resources department, it's good to have somebody um, that you can talk to, a human resource. And th there are companies out there that, that can provide services towards, to, towards your company if you have questions in regards to human resources. So it's always good to have some sort of human resource management somewhere within your organization. So this is a question that I receive quite a bit. <laughs> believe it or not. I don't know if it's because I work for a ministry. But I get asked a lot, is it important to abide by the law? Well, 
let's go and look at the words of Christ. What does, what does Jesus say about this? And you see there in Matthew chapter 22, verse 21, Jesus says, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Okay? I have another example in the form of Daniel. Daniel, as we know, was somebody who was in a very close position with the king. And they were so close that there were people surrounding the king that were jealous. And so they were trying everything that they could to bring Daniel down. Let's read over there in Daniel chapter 6, verses 4 to 5. The presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. What does that tell us there? That, that no matter how hard these people tried, they could not find any fault in him. Now we're going through a political election right now. And what are some of the things that we see out there? A lot of smear campaigns, a lot of digging into people's past, I'm not just talking about the presidential election, any type of political election out there. There's a lot of propaganda. But with Daniel, they could find absolutely nothing, so much so that they had to hit him in the one area where it would hurt, and that would be in regards to his God. Now, do we have protections in the law for our religious liberty? Yes, we do. Does anybody know where? It's written right there in the Constitution. Which amendment? Right. First Amendment. Yep. Religious liberty exists right in the First Amendment. Now that is a topic for a whole other seminar, and we're not going to get into that. But we must obey the law of man as long as it doesn't infringe upon the law of our God. Amen? I hope that's pretty easy to understand, and we're all on board with that. But that's the ideology that I'm going to be following today, obeying the law of man, and that's what we're going to be going through. A lot of laws and statutes. So, but obeying the law of man until it infringes upon our freedom of religion. Okay, let's go on. So an overview of what we're going to address today. I'm going to go over some statutes and some legislation that every organization should know. Um, some of them you will deal with on uh, quite a frequent basis. Others are maybe more unique. You, it might come upon or you might not come upon. But I was just wanting to bring it up in case you know, it gives you a good idea of what you may come up against um, as you manage your organization. Um, also, um, there are simple ways to protect your organization from liability. And we're going to go through those um, in some detail. Uh, these, these things that I'm going to talk about are truly things that every organization should know. But not only should they be done, but I'm going to tell you how to do them properly. And believe me that there are repercussions if we're not careful. So I'm going to talk about two government agencies in particular 
um, that your HR department is, deals with uh, on, more on a one-on-one -on -one basis. The first one is the Department of Labor, or the DOL, and the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, we're gonna call it EEOC. These are two agencies that you do not want showing up on your doorstep someday. Okay. So the Department of Labor, what is the Department of Labor? Anybody have an idea? We hear about it every now and then. But this is a, the Department of Labor is a cabinet level uh, department of the US federal government. And what is it responsible for? Well, occupational safety. Basically, when your employee is working at your job, is the employee given the maximum protection to prevent the employee from getting hurt on the job? For example, if the employee deals with fire, uh, are you giving protective gear? Uh, if the employee deals with cutting meat, are you given protective gloves? Are you giving them protective gloves? Things like that. That's what the Department of Labor is responsible for, occupational safety, wage and hour standards. We're gonna go over this in a lot more detail when we talk about the Fair Labor Standards Act. Unemployment insurance benefits. Um, the DOL has a program to assist unemployment insurance, um, to give assistance of unemployment insurance to those who through no fault of their own um, are unemployed. And then we also talk about reemployment services. The DOL provides services to those wanting to reenter the workforce. Okay, and the purpose of the Department of Labor. Let's let's go over that real quick. Um, it oversees the well-being of employees, employment seekers, and retirees. Improves working conditions, advances opportunities for profitable employment, and protects rights and benefits of employees. So as you can see. This department is there to assist the employee, not really the employer, but you as the employer should be in tune to what the DOL is looking for when in regards to your organization. Okay, so that's the Department of Labor. We're gonna talk about the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission or the EEOC. Basically, the EEOC, it assists employees with workplace discrimination, okay? It acts as the investigator. The employee has a complaint, they lodge a complaint with the EEOC, and the EEOC comes in to try to see what's going on and whether there is uh, a legitimate complaint to be made about your organization. So what is it responsible for? Determining discrimination in the workplace, as we talked about, protects against disparate treatment and impact. Is your policy discriminating? Do you treat one group or, or one individual of your one employee differently from other employees that you have? That's, that's talking about the disparate treatment and disparate impact. Now, must demonstrate a prima facie cause. Prima facie, does, do people know what that means? On its face. On its face, it must the applicant, your employee, must demonstrate this prima facie cause under a federal under a federal protected class. And we're gonna go over the federal protected class in a bit. And the burden of proof lies with who? It lies with the applicant. If the applicant is bringing forward a claim against you towards the EEOC, they need to demonstrate this burden of proof, not you. Okay, 
Now, what are the federal protected bases? Let's list them. They can lodge a complaint based on discrimination in terms of race, color, religion or creed, and we'll get back to that in one second, national origin or ancestry, sex or gender, age discrimination, physical and or mental disability. It's not just physical. It also includes mental. Veteran status, genetic information. Okay, and citizenship. Now, in terms of religion or creed, the employer may also have the opportunity to discriminate on that basis as well. Let's say that you as an organization only want to hire, for example, Adventists. Well, um, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act does give the employer some rights to discriminate. However, you must be a church or a religious organization on, your, on its face as well. Now again, this is one of the things that you need to go back and talk to an attorney about and see if this is possible. Okay? If you are simply a business, I would say that would be a lot harder. But if you are a nonprofit that does religiously based work, you would have more of an opportunity to make this type of um, <clears throat> this case. But again, that's something between you and a personal attorney. Okay? So now we're going to go really quickly through some of the legislation that you are going to come upon. The Fair Labor Standards Act, or the FLSA, it's going to impact quite a bit of your uh, decisions in terms of hiring and what you pay your employee. So what does the Fair Labor Standards Act do? Well, one of the things it does is it establishes minimum wage, overtime pay, and child labor standards for full and part-time employees. Now, as an HR director of a uh, ministry, I come upon this quite a bit. In fact, at least once every week, something of this nature pops up for me. It's not very um, uncommon for me to get a call from one of our entities and say, uh, Laura, I have hired somebody uh, to do this, such and such work at my entity, and we have agreed to pay them $50 a week. And so I say, okay, $50 a week. Um, so does that mean that you've hired them as an independent contractor? Oh, no, 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 we, they're an employee and we sign all the proper paperwork. Okay, but paying them $50 a week that doesn't abide by the Fair Labor Standards Act. What the FLSA says is that if you're going to hire an employee, you need to pay them what? Hourly. You cannot, of your own volition, choose to pay somebody a certain amount. And it doesn't matter how, how much, how often they work or how little they work. They get that same amount. That's not correct. Say, well, that sounds more like an independent contractor. So. Are they, do they have their own business? Are they a sole proprietor? Um, do they have their own liability insurance? Uh, do they provide their own materials? More often than not, that answer is no. And it's not because they're trying to, you know, take advantage of the employee. It's simply because they do not know what the rules are. Okay? That's what HR is there for, to make sure that the, we establish the correct uh, methods of payment for these employees. 
Now, also, um, you cannot, of your own volition, choose to pay them $7 an hour. There is a minimum wage. Does anybody know what the federal minimum wage is? Right now, it's, I believe, $7.40, I believe. Is it $7.25? Okay, I'm not even sure myself. But I know that Michigan's is higher. It's $8.50 and bound to go higher. Whichever one is higher, whether it's state or federal, is the one that you go by. Okay? It cannot be any lower than that. And even some cities pay more than a rural environment. Um, if you were to live in Ann Arbor, Michigan, you're going to get paid more than if you lived in some small rural area. So those are the different types of things that you have to consider. Um, child labor standards. They don't get paid. You, don't, you can pay them less than the minimum, but it has to be at least 80% of the minimum wage there. So those are the, just the different types of things that the FLSA takes care of. Um, and like I say, they ensure the organization is in compliance. You don't want people showing up at your door, um, waving the FLSA in your face, and saying you, you're hiring people and you're discriminating against them. Now, real quickly, there is a new overtime rule that the Obama administration came out with just a couple of months ago, I believe. Now, before, in order to legally classify somebody as uh, exempt employee. Does anybody know what exempt means? Yes, yes. Salaried. Properly, in order to legally be classified as properly exempt or salaried, the minimum per week had to be $455. No lower than that. Um, but the Obama administration came down with a new rule that effectively more than doubled that. Now it's $913 per week. No lower than that. Okay. Now, that has affected my organization a great deal. And as soon as I'm done with ASI, I'm going to have to go back and deal with that and make sure that we are all in compliance with that. But those are the types of things that come down um, and that we have to be aware of, made aware of. And that rule goes into effect in December. Okay. Family and Medical Leave Act. Okay. Now, what is the FMLA, or the FMLA as we call it? It entitles eligible employees to take unpaid job-protected leave for specified family with medical conditions with continuation of group health insurance coverage under the same terms and conditions as if the employee had not taken leave. All right. Now, how long of a leave can you take? Up to 12-week leave within a 12-month period for various reasons, usually for serious health conditions. Now, I want to emphasize that this is not paid leave. They can take leave. It's not paid, but they can use their vacation time during that leave. Okay? Um, a lot of people use this for pregnancy-related leaves. You have a baby. A lot of women take it uh, the three months off so they can take care of their baby. You can also use it towards um, a very close family member, a husband, a wife, a child. If they are severely ill, you can uh, file for, uh, or the employer can file for FMLA under this provision. Now, you as the employer, what, how do you determine that your employee is eligible for FMLA leave? Well, they have to be employed for at least 12 months, have to have been employed for at least 12 months, with a minimum 
of 1,250 hours worked during that time. So that's very important to know because it doesn't mean that only your full-time employees can take it, but they just have to have that minimum, 1,250 hours. Okay? Now this is one that I, wasn't, that I was not aware of. They have to be employed, your employee has to be employed at a location with a minimum of 50 employees within the 75 miles of the work site, meaning that even if you have 50 or more employees, depending on where that employee is, if there, is, if there are less than 50 employees within 75 miles of where that employee is working, that employee is not entitled to FMLA protection. Does that make sense? Okay. So this is an area of the law that a lot of people take advantage of, unfortunately. Unfortunately. Um, in order to protect yourself and your organization, there are several things that you can do. Um, when your employee is ready to return to work, uh, I would advise getting a fit-to-work letter from their doctor. Why? Because you so to avoid workers' comp. Say this person comes back too early, and then they say that um, you know it was too soon, and then at least you can say that. Well, I have a fit-to-work letter from your doctor. Also, if you feel that somebody is abusing this privilege, and they, they, let's say that they do, in fact, get a letter from their doctor, you can ask for a second or even a third opinion from another doctor. You're entitled for that. And then um, you, as the employer, can also request for a continued certification or recertification from your employee um, as they're taking their FMLE leave. So there are... Um, different areas that you can protect yourself as the employer. Not a lot of areas under the law you can do that, but under the FMLA you can. Okay, um, the Affordable Care Act. We'll go through that real briefly. Um, this, of course, um, is a relatively new law, and it only applies for entities with 50 or more employees. Um, how it works is employees averaging 30 or more hours over a measurement period, whatever your measurement period you have deemed for your um, organization, they would qualify for employer-provided health care. So, and this measurement period repeats every year. Okay? Um, and it's important to know that the employee is eligible for the health care even if the employee dips below the 30-hour average the following year. So let's say that you have an employee that qualified for it, and then during that course of that year, that employee, the hours were slashed, they were working less hours, they still get that health care for that one year. It just means for the next year, it probably would not apply to them, the health care, if they've been under the 30-hour average. Okay. We'll go through that real quick. Um, may or may not apply for your entity, depending on how many employees that you have. Okay, but the Americans with Disabilities Act, or the ADA, what does this do? It prohibits discrimination against qualified individuals with disabilities. So, um, you know, in job application procedures, or hiring, firing, advancement, any sort of compensation, anything related to what a normal employee would get. There cannot be any discrimination in regards to that. In order for an employee, though, 
to claim for discrimination under the ADA, you need to, your company needs to have at least 15 or more employees. Okay. There's a 15 or more employee level. So the different disabilities include, and this is important, not just physical, but also mental disability. That's also included in that. And how do you determine whether this person has a valid physical or mental disability? Well, it has to um, substantially impact their life. There has to be a record, and it has to be apparent. Okay? So the employer is required to accommodate unless it imposes an undue hardship. Now, what does undue hardship mean? If you were to accommodate this employee, would it cost too much? That, there's one area. Would it change the face of the position that you have for that employee? Um, those are just some of the ways that you can say that this would qualify as an undue hardship. Again, that's something for you and an attorney if that were to come up. But there is leeway under the law for an undue hardship. And one thing I really want to make clear is never, never, never appropriate to ask about your applicant's disability during a hiring process. If you have done pre-interviews with somebody and you really like them, it's gone really well, you like what you've seen on their CV, they've gotten good, great recommendations, and then this person shows up to your interview in a wheelchair, what do you do? You lean forward, you shake their hand, and have proceed with your interview as normal. Do not mention a thing. I hope that's clear. <laughs> if you choose to then, on the merits, um, hire this person, then you can talk about accommodations and different things like that. But during the interview process, it is never appropriate to ask about a disability. The Equal Pay Act, what is that? So that prohibits sex-based wage discrimination. Unfortunately, this is an issue that is still ongoing today. Um, it, um, it talks about discrimination between men and women, and this is important, in the same establishment who perform jobs that are essentially equal in skill, effort, and responsibility, and under the same working conditions. For many, many, many years, women were paid less than men, and they still are, unfortunately. So that's why they came up with this Equal Pay Act, and it was established to protect women. And they determined uh, um, a list of things, how pay was to be de uh, determined. And one of them is skill, effort, responsibility, working conditions, and establishment. Um, on top of this, I don't know if anybody has heard of the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act. This was one of the first pieces of legislation that Obama signed when he, after he became president. This was done in 2009. And it was in regards to a lady by the name of Lilly Ledbetter, who worked for Goodyear for many, many years, had progressed up to a position of some prominence um, and it was only years later that she found out that there were men that were being paid higher than her and at the essentially the same type of position that she was at. So she filed suit under to the EEOC 
However, they threw that suit out. Why? Because she filed it too late. The, the, in order to file suit, you have to have, it's only 180 days from the day that the first discriminatory paycheck was issued. Well, obviously, she didn't know about this, and obviously, she was way too late for that. This was years later. And so this piece of legislation was established under Obama's administration to allow um, th these types of situations not to occur again. Now the new law says that complaints can be filed within 180 days of a discriminatory paycheck, and that 180 days resets after each paycheck, paycheck each discriminatory paycheck is issued. So, so there are different things that are pieces of legislation that are coming down to try to prevent um, discriminatory pay between genders. Okay, Age Discrimination in Employment Act. Now, I had a little bit of this when I was entering the workforce. I was in law school, and it was, um, it's very common to try to get summer jobs um, during breaks in law school. So I had an interview with a very big law firm, and I remember I was sitting there, and there were about maybe 10 partners that were surrounding me. Of course, I was at the head of the table, very intimidated, and nobody was saying one word. They were just kind of sitting there looking at me. Finally, one of them blurts out and says, Laura, how old are you? Needless to say, I thought this interview is over. <laughs> and of course, his partner said, you can't ask that. What are you doing? I was trying his best to shush him and everything. But I was discriminated against for being too young, but this Age Discrimination Employment Act is to protect those uh, employees 40 plus years and older from discrimination. So um, obviously it's never appropriate to ask for somebody's age in an interview. And further, it's also unlawful to discriminate to any term or condition or privilege of employment, including in matters of hiring, firing, promotion, Laying off, you cannot choose to lay off your, eldest, your oldest employee. Compensation, you can't pay an older employee less. Benefits, job assignments, and training. Okay? This is why job descriptions are important. Now, it's very important for me to say that you cannot list an, an age range in a job description. I only want strapping young people from 25 to 35 years of age to apply. No. What you can put, though, is what the job demands. I need somebody who's going to be lifting up heavy boxes. It's going to involve being out in the sun a lot. It's going to involve going up and down stairs. Put all of that in your job description. And if somebody reads that job description and says, hey, I can do that, and if they're if they're a certain age where you think that that's not going to happen, but they say that they can do it, you let them come in and apply for the job. Okay? We cannot discriminate against somebody who's older. And it also provides protection in terms of apprenticeship programs. Now, when you think of an apprenticeship program, what do you think of? You think of somebody that's straight out of school, someone just, somebody that just got their degree. But... If a 70-year-old wants to apply for an apprenticeship program, they cannot be discriminated against for wanting to do that. Okay. 
Pregnancy Discrimination Act. Okay, what does this do? Prohibits discrimination on basis of pregnancy. Now that includes hiring and working conditions. So you cannot refuse to hire someone who is pregnant as long as she is able to do the job. Okay? Pregnancy and maternity leave. Um, you cannot single out pregnancy-related conditions for medical clearance if you don't require that of any of your other employees. Believe it. Believe it or not, this happens quite a bit. For temporary disability. So somebody who's pregnant has to be treated the same as any other temporarily disabled employee. It's pretty self-explanatory. Health insurance. Now, if you offer health insurance, it must cover expenses for pregnancy-related conditions on the same basis as expenses for other medically-related conditions. Okay? Equal access to benefits. They must also be provided the same benefits for those on medical leave for pregnancy-related conditions. Okay? Um, women used to get questions in job interviews uh, on reproduction plans, and they used to get blocked from healthcare. It's absolutely unacceptable today. Um, I actually heard on my way here on the plane, uh, I overheard somebody talking to another person, and that person was telling them how their mother used to be a stewardess on that airline years ago and did it for many years, and then said, but when she got pregnant, she was terminated. Can never do that today. Cannot do that today. When my husband and I came in for our interview um, with, our, with the conference, um, they saw, we didn't have children then, but they saw that we were a young-ish couple, uh, and the potential for us to have children, or me specifically to have children, was there. But I was never asked about what my, my plans were for a family in the future. That never came up. And when I became pregnant with the first one, all they said was congratulations and, you know, we're so happy for you. And that's all you need to say. Okay? You don't have to slap your head and be like, oh, what are we going to do now? Um, it's, it's just one of those things that we need to deal with. Do not mention anything. You move forward. You're happy for your employee. And that's it. As you can see, there are a lot of laws that protect employees, and we as the employer need to be made aware of what's appropriate and what's not. So, Uniformed Services Employment and Reemployment Rights Act, or USERA, what does this do? This protects civilian job rights and benefits for veterans and members of reserve components. So, it's basically there to protect the rights of service members. Um, and improves enforcement of how to protect them as well. It establishes the cumulative length of time that an individual may be absent from work for military duty and retain employment rights to five years. It used to be four years, but now it's five years. And of course, there are some exceptions to that. And also provides protection for disabled veterans, requiring employers to make reasonable efforts to accommodate the disability. So, you know, some service members that are recuperating from their time out, um, 
in, during service or training, they may be given additional time, sometimes up to two years for the, uh, from the completion of service to come back to the job. And that job has to be protected for them during that time. Um, it is illegal and immoral to discriminate against those that have served in the military. I'll give you one example of a lady by the name of Teresa Slater. After her active service ended, she returned to her old employment in uh, Missouri. And, but she found that when she came back to her employment, that they had effectively uh, reconditioned her to be a new employee, thereby going have to go through new employee training again, and she also lost her 13 years of seniority there. So she decided to file a USERRA claim with the EEOC, and not long after that, that company terminated her for what they deemed to be an infraction. So um, she, uh, but she took it as retaliation for bringing the claim against, of USERRA against her, that, that company. So the department ended up investigating the case, and they determined that she was indeed discriminated against. So she was offered her original job back with her 13 years and about $20,000 in back wages. Okay. So claims against USERRA are serious. And um, we want to be treating those types of employees um, with the same respect as anybody else. OK, so um, that's you, Sarah. And finally, we're going to be talking about Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, or GINA. And this says that it's illegal to discriminate against employees or applicants because of genetic information. Um, and employees can file for, under, under GINA, if you have at least 15 or more employees in your organization. So what does that mean? So that includes information about an individual's genetic tests and the genetic tests of an individual's family members, also about the manifestation of a disease or disorder in an individual's family members. So um, that basically states that they need to be whatever information that you have on them or even on their family members for potential in the future as well cannot be used against them uh, in the hiring process. And um, <clears throat> so it's, this is also an area of the law that is very, very stringent. And let me give you another example. And this is a bit of a smelly example. There was <laughs> apparently an issue of somebody um, depositing some unwanted feces um, to a, a warehouse that happened to um, package groceries, grocery items. Somebody, for whatever reason, obviously somebody that's not mentally stable was, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, defecating on the property. So the, the company which owned the warehouse, they decided to ask all of the employees for a cheek swab to see if any of them were the perpetrator so they can test the DNA and the feces with the DNA of their employees. So it was found that those that did not match with the description, they filed a complaint with the EEOC saying that this was a violation under GINA. 
And so what actually happened was the, the company tried to say that that didn't apply in this case because it was not considered um, genetic testing. You're just simply getting, trying to get genetic information to see if the DNA matched. The, the courts decided the case, and they decided in favor of the employees that genetic information still constitutes as protection under GINA. Okay? So, again, um, recourses under the law for employers are a lot harder <laughs> under these statutes. So it's important to know what you're up against when you're dealing with EEOC matters or even DOL matters. Okay. That's it in terms of um, talking about um, different statutes that you may come up against. So now we're going to go into the part of the lecture where we talk about protecting your organization from liability. And I have um, three rules of thumb that, that we can go through. Number one is being consistent. We talked about this a little bit before. Do not discriminate. Um, do not pay one more than another if they're doing the, essentially the same job. Um, don't treat one with favorability over another. I come across this quite a bit, believe it or not, in my line of work. Um, and it's not because it's a complaint against the employer. Sometimes the employee offers this. Um, a lot of the entities that I am in charge of, they don't have oodles and oodles of money. And they might have an employee that's getting paid, but they need somebody else to kind of help out with that employee doing essentially the same job. And a lot of times that person will come to me and say, I don't mind doing it for free. I just don't mind volunteering. I just want to do service for the Lord. And I say, well, that is wonderful to hear, and I commend you for that, but I can't let that happen. I just can't let that happen. I cannot have somebody that is essentially doing the same thing as a paid employee and have that person not being paid. And it might not matter now, but somewhere down the line, it just might. Somebody might see that, or that person might end up being there for years and years and years. And it happens. It happens. We cannot treat people differently. What I usually say to those employees is that, well, why don't you just go ahead and get paid, and why don't you give, if you want, give that paycheck back to your organization. It's up to you. So there are different ways to work around that but I would highly advise you not to take that option. Be consistent. Number two, document, document, document. Document, document, document. This requires you as the employer to be vigilant, which is tough. Um, if you have an employee that you feel is not doing a good job, you must document it. Not only that, you must keep them accountable. Sit them down, talk to them. Document your time that you've talked to them. List the date, the different things that you've said. And then if it ever comes to the time where you have to terminate, at least, to terminate, at least you have a paper trail. I've seen situations where people just hold it in, they hold it in, hold it in, and one day, boom, they just lay down the gauntlet, and that person's out of there. And if there is no paper trail, you are going to be the one that is going to be found liable. So, and also, we just went through this on a whole different level. Know the law. Know what you're up against. 
Know the two different organizations that are going to keep you accountable. What were they? Department of Labor, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, and then all the different laws that fall under the discriminatory practices, or all the different categories. Okay? Okay. Now, completed I-9s. Do we all know what I-9s are? Okay. I-9s are those forms that you sign that every employee of your organization needs to have completed no later than the first day of hire. I-9s are employment verification documents. They're not a company form. They are a government form. Okay? And if you do not have completed I-9s, it can mean serious repercussions for your organization. This is something, in my opinion, that is so simple, but it is so difficult, for whatever reason, for organizations to comply with. It requires the employer to be proactive in learning how to fill them out properly and to do them properly. So I-9s basically tell the government that your employee is legally able to work in the United States. What does that I-9 ask for? It asks for whether this person is a U.S. citizen or a permanent resident or an alien that is authorized to work. And they also have to present some forms of identification with them. Now, this, the, the simple thing is do not hire anybody that does not have a work permit. You will not believe the number of people that I get coming back to me that have hired someone with no documentation. You need somebody with documentation or it's lights out for your company. Also, because they are government forms, they have to be filled out properly. You cannot have whiteout on them. You cannot have major scratches on them. You cannot have liquid paper. You cannot fill them out in pencil. You cannot have them faxed in. They need to be original documents. Um, let me give you an example. So there are repercussions of non-compliant I-9s. Let me give you an example of an events planning company. Recently, this events planning company was issued a fine by the government of $605-250, more than half a million dollars, which is the largest fine ever levied by the immigration's and Customs Enforcement Agency. Why? Why did this company get issued such a huge fine? I'll tell you why. It was simply because their I-9s were non-compliant. Something that should be a no-brainer for any company, but th this is what happens. The, the Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, they will sometimes show up unannounced to organizations, and this unfortunately happened to this company where they did an internal audit and they found that their I-9s were just simply non-compliant and levied them that fine. So let me tell you what, what kind of things that the, um, the government found. So the employers failed to sign off on Section 2. As you know, that there are two parts to the I-9. The first part is the employee. The second part is the employer. The employers just failed to sign off on any of the second pages of Section 2. Four individuals, they, they failed to find any I-9s for four of their employees. Failure to indicate immigration status. That is listed on the first page of the I-9. It's very clear. 
You check if you're a US citizen, you check if you're a permanent resident, or you check if you're an alien authorized to work. Obviously that there were no such checks in some of the forms there. Failure to ensure completion of section one. Perhaps these employees just did not sign and date them. Easy, easy things to do. Failure to enter their alien number. So obviously this company hired some people that were not US citizens and they should have entered their alien numbers. And then missing list A, B, and C documents. Do we know what A, B, and C documents are? List A documents are your passports, permanent resident cards, employment authorization cards. Those establish both your identity and your employment eligibility. If you're a US citizen, it shows both on that form. If you're a permanent resident, it shows both on that form. A list B document establishes only identity, which is your driver's license or your ID card, or if you were a minor, sometimes they'll accept um, your school ID or even a report card. A list C document establishes employment authorization, a social security card or a birth certificate. Those are the two main ones. Those are the types of documents that your employee must present to you. And our, our conference actually takes copies of those. We keep those copies on file. So those are very, very, this is a very, very simple but often overlooked area. When I entered the HR department for the conference, we did an internal audit. And the number of non-compliant, maybe I shouldn't say this, <laughs> but we did an internal audit and we cleaned up a lot of stuff. And I highly recommend if you have employees that you do the same. You don't want Immigrations and Customs Enforcement coming up upon your door and leaving you, on an, leaving you in, the, in the lurch. Okay. Um, I thought it would just be a good idea to go through what a good interview would look like. Um, it's good to have ads. How many of you post um, uh, jobs? Okay. Um, for your ads, like we talked about before, similar to a job description, you have to have a must-have list. Um, must stand for a long period of time, must have driver's license. It's very important to have those, list as many of the must-haves as you can. Um, and it's good to post them in the social or public areas, websites or on the web is the best. Accept resumes only when openings are available. I don't recommend people accept resumes as they come in when there's no job. You should only accept them when you have an opening. I'm sorry? Well, it's just, it's, not, it's just not a good policy to keep loads and loads of resume on file. In fact, they say that after a year, you should get rid of them if there's no job. If you're over 40, 40 and above, they say you can keep them up to two years. But people's resumes change. And a lot of times, you won't have somebody that will be unemployed for that whole year. So you're keeping personal information for someone who you may never hire. So it's just, on policy, not a good idea to have that. Well, it's just, it's just better policy not to have. Not necessarily that you'd be sued, but better policy not to have it. Okay? And when you interview, you should interview only those 
that meet your qualifications. Um, it's good to have a criteria of what you want and to conduct pre-screen phone calls. When you do pre-screening, um, <clears throat> you have to emphasize that this is not an interview and you have to ask them all the same questions. Okay? And then after that, it's good to select at least your top three. If you have several candidates, select your top three. And then when you ask your questions, they should only be related to the job. So your strengths, your weaknesses, the job accomplishments, it always needs to be in regards to that job. Don't ask about themselves in a general way. Don't sit back and say, tell me about yourself. Every question needs to be related to that job. Okay? Um, ask weed out questions. I, I really like this area. Um, say that you have a job out there that's kind of industry specific. Well, ask questions that relate specifically to your industry. Um, let me give you an example. Let's say, I mean, I guess because I work a lot with pastors, um, if you were going to hire a pastor, ask questions that relate to that pastor. One question that would stump me would be, hmm, you know, what kind of um, position you take on the nature of Christ? Is it pre-fall, post-fall, or hybrid? You know, if there's somebody that just wants to apply for a job and has no idea, that question would stump them. It would stump me. I still have yet to really think about <laughs> what my view is on the nature of Christ. But you would hope that your candidate for pastor would have his own opinion in regards to that and know that area very well. It's the same with any of the, the jobs that you post out there. You want somebody who's right for your industry-specific position. So weed out questions are a good thing to ask. So after you have the interviews, uh, we recommend that you sit down with your trusted you know, board or your trusted employers in, in, a, in a room by themselves with no one else around, and you discuss. And that's a private conversation you have there. And what we also recommend is that if you have equal candidates that are equal on every level, in terms of resume, in terms of how they present themselves to you, why don't you pick the one that's most different? Okay. That's our recommendation. Pick the one that's most different. So, and then you can also say, you know, your hire will be contingent on you passing a background check or having proper I-9s and different things like that. But, you know, that's, that's one way of having a really good, well-rounded job interview. Okay? Another thing that I think is just so important for our organizations are to have a policy book. To me, that's a no-brainer. When the DOL, the Department of Labor, comes knocking on your door, what's the first thing they're going to look for? It's going to be your policy book. Okay? So, in your policy book, what should you have? Number one should be a mission or a vision statement. Does your organization have such a statement? If you don't, I recommend that you go back and you craft one. It will help your employee to know what your organization is about. And number two, give a brief history of what your organization is about when you came into existence. What, what's the purpose of your organization? 
you know, what are the things that you hope to accomplish with your organization? Give that brief history right next to that mission and vision statement. Mission statement with a brief history right next to it. So also, at-will statements. Nowadays, um, it's important to have those at-will statements. An at-will employee is someone that is not bound by a contract, of course. And it's somebody that can terminate employment any time, or you can terminate their employment. Okay. But it's good to list that so that they know right off the bat that they are an at-will employee. Okay. Also, it's good to list your state and federal laws in regards to your um, organization, uh, OSHA, HIPAA, um, any sort of industry-specific laws, what your policy is or what the laws are in regards to the ADA or the EEOC, it's good to list all of those um, right after that at-will statement. So the mission, vision statement, brief history, at-will statements, and any laws that apply to your organization. Um, it's good to ask an attorney, make sure that it's legally vetted that, um, and, and that you have all the proper laws in there. And then you list what type of benefits you offer, what type of fringe benefits, whether it's health care, whether it's retirement, life insurance, you know, long-term disability, all of those should be listed there. And not only should they be listed there, but if you offer it, you need to offer it. If you don't offer it, please take it out. You know, something that your employee can rely upon and that you don't have to come back years later with the employee saying, well, I wasn't offered this and I didn't know. You can say it was right there in that policy book. Okay. When you have, oh, and also with rules and regulations, this is where you put your organization's specific type of rules. Um, do you have a dress code? As, um, you know, as Christians, do we want our employees to be dressed a certain way? You put that in there. Do you want them to be wearing jewelry? You put, that, you put that in there. Um, is the employment uh, contingent on passing regular background checks? You put that in there. How often do you require those background checks? Those all need to be put in there. So any type of organizational, relational rules, that's where you list them. For your policy? No, no. But we do recommend that you have it no matter what. If you have one employee, I would recommend you have one. Yeah. Yes, and that's where I'm going to be going right after that. You must have seen it. <laughs> so when you have your orientation, you go over this policy book with them, and there is a form that they should sign that says that they had received it and that they understand, they understand the terms as it was listed in there. Okay? And you keep that on file with you um, forevermore. Okay? Um, so, like I said, uh, and I think I went a little bit too fast, with, with your policy book, it, it, I don't mean, when I first heard about policy books, I thought, well, I can't just sit there and write out a policy book all by myself. You don't need to do that. You don't need to reinvent the wheel. There are programs out there that will help give you templates. I've used one in creating my conference's policy book. There are great templates out there. You can, you can reach out to other organizations, see if they'd be willing to share their policy books with you. 
does not mean that you have to start from scratch. You can dovetail off of other people, but make sure that you legally vet your own and that it's specific to your organization. So, um, I do see some hands out there, but I, if I can just um, talk to you afterwards, I just need to go through some of these things without getting too off track. But I appreciate any comments. You Feel free to come talk to me afterwards. We'll do that. Okay. Um, creating job descriptions. This is something also to me that is a no-brainer. We talked about um, handbooks and that the Department of Labor, that's the first thing they look for when they come knocking on your door. What is the first thing that the EEOC looks at are job descriptions, okay? Um, <clears throat> this is a very critical document and you need to constantly update them um, when you have them. The new hires should always sign them as well. Um, they should be part of a job posting, obviously. But when you hire a new employee, you need to show them also during the orientation that this is the job description and these are the expectations that you have for them. Um, in that job description, of course, it's going to list what you expect for them. But we also talked about listing other things like of whether it requires a lot of heavy lifting, whether it requires a lot of physical labor. Are you going to be going up and down the stairs a lot? Are you going to be outside a lot? Are you going to be driving a lot? All those types of things need to be listed in your job description and clearly outlined and having them sign off on them. In fact, it's good to update them consistently, at least once a year, at least. And off of the job descriptions is where you can get your annual performance reviews. You sit down with your employee and you pull out that job description and say, and that's what you base off of your performance reviews. And then it also gives the opportunity to update them as they need to be. A lot of, certainly a lot of times our jobs change. If you have a good employee, sometimes they get more I'm sorry, responsibilities update their job descriptions. That's going to require a lot of proactive work on your part, but it's worth it in the end. Okay? Um, so include any potential risks. Um, like we mentioned before, there was a job that included a lot of heavy lifting, and then this person filed a claim saying that this job ruined the person's back. Well, again, the EEOC looks right at that job description. It says it was clearly written there. You signed off on it. And in fact, you signed off on it every year. Performance objectives take place of job description. Performance objectives. Uh, for instance, uh, what one's responsibilities are uh -huh. and the objectives to be met. Well, those can be put into a job description, couldn't they? You can make that into a job description. Yeah. So um, I actually I have a template of a job description if anybody wants them. Um, I'm more than happy to distribute them to anybody that wants to look at them. But it, the job description that I have also talks about even the work place or the work environment that they are at. Does this place have enough sunlight? Does it provide? Um, you know, is it ergonomically good?
for the employee? Do they, you know, those, those different types of things are all listed in a well-rounded job description. And if anybody wants that template, I'm more than willing to share that with them. So um, just to go really quickly about why we need job descriptions, it manifests the clear duties and expectations that are um, put upon the employee, like we talked about, um, used to demonstrate compliance, what we talked about with the uh, workers' comp issue. Um, you know, this employee said that they got a physical disability from the job. Well, if it was clearly mentioned in the job description, um, then it would reduce the, the, the level of complaint that can be uh, levied against the employer. And also for performance assessment, annual performance reviews, um, something that the employee can measure themselves against and that you can measure the employee against. So if we can go back, um, what are the things that the Department of Labor looks at? Your handbook. And what does the EEOC look at? Your job descriptions. At the very least, your organization should have both of those things. We'll go over really briefly what progressive disciplinary actions um, you can go through with an employee. Always remember that the law is there to benefit the employee more than the employer. Okay. Um, with a non-compliant employee, again, we talked about this being a proactive measure on your part. You need to sit them down and say, These are the, this is the area where I wish that you would be more vigilant in, so you can offer a warning. Document that time that you sat down and talked with them and put it down in writing. You can even have a written document that details the scenario or, or the infractions that the employee has committed. Put it down in a written document. And you can even have that employee sign off on it. If the employee refuses to sign off on it, write there that the employee has refused to sign on this date. Okay? Um, oftentimes, you have at least two or more um, incidents like this where you sit them down, you talk to them, you document it, and if it does not improve, terminate. Okay? At least two or more times after you've done the, the documenting and the sitting down and talking. Um, never, ever, ever terminate somebody without going through this. It'll come back on you as the employer and not on the employee. Um, so for termination protocol, it's good to provide a form with your different questions and, and statements of your expectations of that employee. Obtain a signature of agreement Oops, I guess that was it. So, and then also obtain a signature of agreement. Okay, um, that's, There's a reason why we say progressive disciplinary actions. We do not want uh, a one-time deal, you're fired. Okay? Things need to be on a progressive level. Remember, remember, the law is there to benefit the employee more than the employer. Um, we're coming to a close here, and um, one of the things that I also highly recommend, based on my own experience, 
is to join an HR society to keep yourself informed. I'm part of an HR society, and my society has advisors on staff that you can email at any time, and I can even call them, and I can live chat with them. And I use them quite a bit. As you can see, HR is a very varied and wide, wide, has a wide array of topics that I cannot possibly know all the answers to. So anytime I'm stumped with a question, which comes up quite a bit, I go straight to that HR society and I ask them. And they give me the answer. And when I go back to that entity that talked to me, I can have the confidence to know that this was by an expert's opinion that has given it to me. Okay. Also, um, with this HR society, they give me frequent legal updates on the law. We talked a little bit about that new overtime rule that came down from the Obama administration that effectively more than doubled the, the uh, normal minimum rate for exempt employees. That HR society emailed frequently saying, we think this is coming, this is what to expect, any day now it's going to become law. And sure enough, within a couple of weeks, it was there. So it was not a big, huge surprise to me when it did happen. They send frequent updates on all the different laws that are affecting HR that happen across the country, and I find them to be very useful. Not only that, their website has plethora of seminars and webinars, and I have attended several of them, and I've also um, listened to some of the webinars that they have. They have a lot of PowerPoint presentations on them, and they have topic-specific categories that you can go towards. If you want to learn more about I-9s, they have a section on that. If you want to learn more about policy books, they have a section on that. Job descriptions, a lot of the things that we talked about are taken straight um, from, that, from those types of HR societies. I think it's an investment that's well worth it uh, when you talk about liability in the face of liability and making sure that we're, um, we're in league with government standards. Okay. The last thing I want to bring up is I have, I have worked with both ends of the spectrum. I've worked in um, ministry areas. I've also worked out in the, the private sector. And it's my opinion that when we're dealing with employees, no matter how small of an organization you are or how big of an organization you are, this is my rule of thumb. And I want to share this with you as a final send-off. So that is always err on the side of generosity. You may be penalized for not doing enough for your employee, but you will never be penalized for going over and above for your employee. And I know that a lot of times, you know, we're, we're doing the Lord's work, we're nonprofits, and um, we need to make sacrifices. We ourselves make sacrifices. And but there's only so much that we can ask of our employee to sacrifice. We want them to be happy. We want them to be satisfied with their job. And... Um, what, what I always like to tell people is don't be the employer that conserves money and resources at the expense of the employee. What does the Bible say about this? Well, 
I have this verse, Philippians chapter 2, verse 4. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, even if it's in, if you never, even if you have a, a nonprofit that's, that's working for the Lord, but also look for the interests of others. So let's remember this as we go about our business. Um, I'd love to hear more about what your organizations are about and what they entail, but one thing is for certain, that we need to be fair to our employees and we need to make everybody happy and that in effect makes us good stewards of the Lord's work. Amen? So, so that's what I have for you today. Thank you so much for your attention and for sitting through. It's been quite a lot of information. I know it's a lot of to process, but thank you for your attention again. I'm here for any questions if you have any, and um, God bless. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.